Hear the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opened him to his face because he stood condemned. For before him certain men came from Jesus, and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And when the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even when Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step, um, oh, I lost my spot. Um, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are the Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, for through the law, if I died to the law so that I might live, I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify with the grace of God, for if righteous were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Great job. It's a little bit of a bait and switch when I preach, because I say to the students, hey, you want to read for me? But I don't tell them how many verses it is. So then I hand it to her, and it's like, this many? Um, I just want to say to you before we get started that as we've been doing this uh, sermon series about membership, uh, it has struck me every morning that we get to come to the same place and go in worship before the throne of God with the same people. And it brings me such joy to know that we get to do this together, and we're going to get to do it again next week, Lord willing. And I just, I just it struck me, and, and, and I love that. So, all right, let me pray, and then we will jump into the word this morning. Father, you have given us so much breath in our lungs food on our table, places to lay our head, a church in which we can freely worship with our brothers and sisters. For those things alone, you would be worthy of our praise. But you didn't stop there. You overwhelm us with your grace and your mercy through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we open your word and learn about who you are and how we respond to it, would Jesus be glorified? Would Jesus be magnified? Would we look more like Jesus at the end of this service today, not by my power, but by your power and your grace, so that we might together embody the person of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Will you hand me my second water that I forgot? I've had to get two waters this morning. I keep losing them. 
So the current uh, editor-in-chief of Christianity Today is a guy named Russell Moore. And Russell Moore used to be a professor at Southern Seminary, where I go. He used to be the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he tells this story about his first uh, memory of Sunday school. And this is a guy that was is, is thoroughbred Southern Baptist, right? I, I heard an interview with him where someone had the 1974 uh, Baptist hymnal and would say a number, and he would know what hymn that number was. This guy, this guy is Southern Baptist through and through, and he tells this story about his first memory of Sunday school. And he said they were doing like a, like a money drive, a coin drive uh, for missionaries, and he, so he's, you know, young, very little, and he brought in his coins, and uh, he starts, uh, as kids are weird, like we could say that, there's a few kids in here, I got to amen, that, that's a fact. Kids, kids can be weird, I'm, you know, student minister, they're, they're a little weird. Well, so as kids do, he just starts putting the coin in his mouth. He's just like kind of, you know, gnawing on the coin. And his teacher, his Sunday school teacher, looks at him and says, Russell, get that coin out of your mouth. It is filthy. You don't know where that coin has been. A colored man might have touched that coin. And then she said, All right, class, let's stand and sing Jesus Loves the Little Children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. It's a weird story. It's a ridiculous story. There's a clash of ideologies in this story. This woman believed the gospel. This woman believed in the triune God, in the justifying works of Jesus Christ, and she probably believed in her heart that Jesus loved the little children. She had the right knowledge, but her behavior, her words, were in direct contrast to her beliefs. She may have intellectually known the right doctrine, but what her actions said was he loves the white ones a little bit more. There was a conflict between her doctrine and her culture. And I don't mean to come down super hard on this woman I've never met, because we all know and we can all recognize that we do this in our own lives. Maybe not with the same sin of, of racism, but we all have parts of our lives that do not match our beliefs. We say one thing on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, but we behave differently every other day of the week. There's a disconnect between our gospel belief and our culture. And when I say culture, I don't want you to think of the world outside. You know, we, we talk about the culture a lot. That's not what I mean when I'm saying the culture. What I mean is our culture. We have a culture. The, the world has a culture, yes. The, our country has a culture. Our state has a culture. Our, our city, our neighborhoods, our families, our sports teams, our jobs. And yes, even our churches have and build a culture. We celebrate certain thoughts and behaviors. We tolerate other thoughts and behaviors. And then there are thoughts and behaviors that we reject as well. That is what builds a culture. 
And so as we come to uh, Galatians 2, Paul and Peter are in conflict. Now, I don't know about Mary. She must have been off on a jet plane. That was for you boomers out there. The kids are like, what? So Paul and Peter are in a conflict, and it is over this very idea. Peter is building a culture, not in words, not in ideas, but in actions that is hypocritical. I would go so far as to say that Peter believes the gospel, but is living out a culture that is anti-gospel. And the point that Paul is trying to make to Peter and to the church in Galatians and to Fellowship Baptist Church today is that being rooted in gospel doctrine should create gospel culture. Being rooted in gospel doctrine should create gospel culture. So what do I, what do I mean when we say gospel doctrine and gospel culture? So I want to give you uh, some, some definitions. I'm going to use those terms a lot. And so I want you to know what I mean when, when I say them. So first, when I say gospel doctrine, doctrine is just a word that means a set of beliefs. This is a set of beliefs that we have. And what I don't want you to hear when I say gospel doctrine is all of the theological knowledge of God of all times. That's good. We should study doctrine. We should study the Trinity and creation and complementarianism and baptism. There's all these beliefs, these doctrines that we can have. But when I say gospel doctrine... I simply mean this, the knowledge of God's divine grace for the undeserving. It's it's that simple little foundational belief. We believe that God has accomplished this through Jesus. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, rescues people from the wrath of God and into the peace of God. God's divine grace for the undeserving. And we, we don't deserve it. It's a gift that's freely given, unfairly bestowed upon us from a mighty, holy, transcendent God. So when I say gospel doctrine, th- that's what I want your mind to go to, is the divine grace to lowly, broken sinners, undeserving sinners from a holy, transcendent God. That's gospel doctrine. So gospel doctrine should produce gospel Culture, what is gospel culture? Well, define it this way. Gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The shared experience of grace for the undeserving. You can see how they're tied, right? We have a knowledge of God's divine grace, and now we have the experience together of God's grace. And this can be a harder thing for people to to wrap their minds around, especially people like me. Uh, I think in absolutes, I think in definitions, I really, I really like clear lines. But gospel culture is, it's an intangible. Uh, a pastor that I, that I love named Ray Ortland, he, he says, it's the incarnation of the biblical message in relationships. It's a vibe. I think he says that for the Zoomers. It's a vibe, a feel, a tone. It's our values, our priorities, our honesty, our freedom, our gentleness, our humility, cheerfulness, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. Building 
a gospel culture like that is a large task, but we do not have to fly blind because it's exactly what this conflict between Peter and Paul is, is ultimately about. It's a gospel issue. It's an issue of gospel culture. So what exactly is Peter doing that Paul is taking such an issue with? Well, look back at, with me at verses 11 uh, through 14. So it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, by the way, uh, Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though like a Jew, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So, very simply, Peter was eating with Gentiles. He was, he was eating with Gentiles. If you remember back in, in Acts 10, it was like previously on the Bible, back in Acts 10, God speaks to Peter through a vision, and he tells him, he shows him all these foods that were unclean uh, under Jewish law, and he says, take and eat. And Peter thinks it's a test, and he's like, no, God, I've never defiled myself. And God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then, right after that happens, this guy randomly shows up at Peter's house and he says, Hey, I've been sent to invite you to come eat with my commander, Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman, he's a Gentile, and Peter knows that this is from the Lord. And he agrees to go eat with him, which is, is contrary to Jewish law, contrary to Jewish custom. Peter, as a Jew, is not supposed to dine, is not supposed to eat with Gentiles. But he invites, or he accepts the invitation and gets there, and Cornelius, this Gentile, says, I had a vision that God told me to invite you over. And then Peter says this. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. It's in this moment, there's this radical shift in Jewish culture. And Peter is saying, we can eat with the Gentiles. We, we can have bacon every once in a while. The gospel is for everybody, not just for Jews. He came to the knowledge that Jesus loves the little children. They are all precious in his sight. It is a huge watershed moment for the expansion of God's kingdom. So you, you got to realize how this is a big deal that the Gentiles now have access to the gospel. And so Peter's eating with Gentiles, eating with Gentiles, eating with Gentiles. But then he starts to have some, some misgivings about this whole change. Because there's these powerful Jewish men, have a lot of political power, that they're here called the circumcision party. And they want all the Gentiles to live according to Jewish laws. Which Peter knows is not right. Peter knows that God has already told him that there is no need for those, those eating laws anymore. But Peter bows to the peer pressure. He bows to the, the cultural pressure. And so when those, uh, so over here, he's like eating with the Gentiles. But then those Jewish leaders, the circumcision party shows up and he ignores them and only eats with Jewish people. 
And then those guys leave, and he, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm free to be obedient to God now. And Paul takes a serious issue with this, and he should. He should take issue with this, but I love, I, this is, I love how Paul addresses this sin in Peter. Um, starting in verse 15, he says, We ourselves, this me and you, Peter, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And then he says this. This is key. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't, or Paul doesn't tell Peter, hey, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. He doesn't say, hey, this is sin and you need to clean your life up and you need to start behaving better. He doesn't even say, hey, this is racism that is contrary to God's character. He doesn't go for behavior modification. He doesn't just say, hey, you're doing something wrong. He says, you, Peter, are out of step with the gospel. He takes it to the doctrinal level. He says, we know, Peter, you know that a person is not justified by works. You know that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. So why are you acting like these Jewish works matter? He goes straight to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Straight to justification by faith alone, which is a critical doctrine. It's, it's what the entire Reformation was fought over, was justification by faith alone. It's the very root of the gospel. That righteousness comes to us only through faith in Jesus Christ, of the undeserving by grace, just like we talked about in our definitions earlier. So our church, it is critically important that we accept that our only justification before God, the only way we can be unified with God is through Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other God we can believe in. There's no other work that we can do. Only through faith in Jesus Christ can unite us to God. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, how are you right with God? Very simple. Imagine just going up to someone on the street asking that. How are you right with God? Well, here's the answer. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Sit with that for a moment. There is a God who created the earth, who we rebel against daily, hourly, by the minute, and he has offered us redemption through his son, Jesus. It's the earth-shattering, life-changing news of the gospel, and we so many times are like Peter, and we just kind of take it for granted. We don't appreciate the, the gravity, the weight of our sin, the, the radical holiness of God, and therefore the amount of grace and mercy that he must bestow upon us to unite us to him. It's kind of like how my dog acts. My dog, he's, he's cute. I should have put a picture of him up there. That would have been cute. You would have been too distracted. But he's got it made. We give him food whenever he wants. He's got a temperature-controlled place to sleep. He's got toys upon toys upon toys. You can't take a step in our house without stepping on a bone. But what does he do every time me and Darcy are trying to bring in groceries and the front door opens? He's trying to get out. He's like, I know what I've got in here, but what's out there? 
I want to know what's out there. And it's like, you, you dummy. You're going to go out there and you're going to die. You don't know how to survive out there in the wild. He doesn't appreciate how good he has it in the house. He doesn't appreciate that we give him free food and toys and all of these, things, a bed he loves to chew on. He just sees something else that he thinks he wants and he runs out to get it. And then what do I have to do? I have to go chase him down. But many times that's our attitude towards God and his grace to us. We're given unity, we're given peace with God, we're given life and life abundantly, forgiveness of our sins, acceptance in the house of the Lord, but instead of basking and soaking that goodness in, we focus on that open door that's like, oh, but what's out there? Is it better out there? Is there more opportunity out there? Will people like me more if I, if I go through the door? We cannot get distracted from the beautiful glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. We can never forget it. It's central to who we are as believers. We have to hang on to it. And that doctrine, justification by faith alone, when we appreciate it rightly, it produces a whole new kind of culture, a whole new kind of place to be. It doesn't just create a new people, it creates a new kind of person. Peter wasn't seeing the whole picture. He wasn't applying the finished work of Jesus by justification, by faith, equally. And that's why Paul comes in and says, justification by faith alone, justification by faith alone, justification by faith alone. He's saying, Peter, you're teaching that grace is for the undeserving, but your behavior is saying it's only for Jewish people who do all the right things and Gentile people that do all the Jewish things. Paul says it's not just wrong, it's out of step with the gospel. It's anti-gospel. Instead, what the, just, the doctrine of justification of faith, by faith alone brings us is realization that we are all broken, sinful enemies of God. And we were made close to him, drawn close to him by no work of our own. And that knowledge not only draws us close to God, but it draws us closer together. And it draws us deeper into the love of Christ. Church becomes the place where by God's grace and through God's power, we get to take steps in sanctification, looking more like Jesus. We get to do it together. We don't have to do it alone. It's not our own work of working really hard to try to look like Jesus on our own. No, we get to grow in honesty and humility and in freedom and joy. The church becomes fresh air. It's not just another activity that sits on the calendar. It becomes a place of refreshment. When we live with gospel doctrine and gospel culture together, we create the kind of place that Christians want to be and non-Christians want to know what's going on. What's happening here? You guys care about each other. You love one another. You're not hiding anything from each other. Here's the best way I, I could sum it up in, in one little phrase. You are sinful. You are sinful, and that should humble you. But you are made righteous in Christ. And in that, you can be confident. In that, 
you can be confident. Paul says in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say we think. He doesn't say we might be. He says we know confidence. If we could remember the vast source of humility that is provided to us by our own sin and Jesus redeeming us from that sin and the equally vast source of confidence that is available to us in Christ Jesus, it changes our conversations because we're humble and confident in who we are in Christ. Our small groups look different because we're humbling ourselves but confident about where we stand in Jesus. Our homes are different. Our church becomes different. But I want to I want to stress the, the seriousness with which Paul takes this situation. He says Peter is denying the very gospel with his actions. And the language that Paul uses is is consequential. We already talked about how he says he's out of step with the gospel, but jump to the end. He says in verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. What he's implying is that Peter is nullifying the grace of God. It's like, and this is, this is Paul, like the theology guy. Like he wrote the greatest theological work of all time, the book of Romans. But what he doesn't go after is Peter's doctrine. What he doesn't go after is Peter's theology. He says, your behavior. Your words, the way you're treating people, nullifies the grace of God. Francis Schaeffer put it this way, Christian orthodoxy without compassion is the ugliest thing in the world. When we continually get this wrong, the consequences are vast. It's a danger, it's a danger to our churches because we get lulled into this false sense of niceness and politeness. Uh, uh, we, we talked about in youth uh, last year that the biggest lie ever told to you in church is, I'm good. Hey, how are you this week? I'm good. It's the biggest lie. The gospel culture is not just one of politeness, Think about Romans 15, 7. Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as God has welcomed you. For the glory of God. We, Jesus is not aloof to us. Jesus is not nice to us. He's not just polite to us. That's not how Jesus thinks about you. Jesus has taken the burden of your sin onto himself. He's sacrificed himself to the ultimate degree and not for his friends. It's easy to die for someone's friends. Jesus went and died for his enemies. So what does that say about how we welcome one another in this room? When we're in Christ and we're rooted in gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone, we recognize that we're all sinners who have been redeemed by the grace of God and our affections for one another, our love for one another should match the degree of that doctrine. Our interest in one another should match the degree of that doctrine. And, and our love, our service to one another is at stake when our culture does not match 
our doctrine. Or you could even take this as a more practical example. There's many people my age and, and younger than me that are leaving the church week by week. And young millennials and, and Gen Z, they're leaving the church in greater numbers uh, than, than we've seen in previous generations. But, interestingly, some of them still profess faith in Jesus at a higher rate than in previous generations. So they've left the church, but they still profess faith in Jesus. And this is why, this is why they say they leave. They leave not because they do not believe what the church teaches. They leave because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church th- teaches. Let me say that again. They leave not because they do not believe what the church teaches. They're on the same page doctrinally. They believe all the same things. But they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. Our doctrine is not what's scaring some young believers away from the church. It's our culture. The way that churches have behaved drives people away from the church. They see inconsistency between what they hear on a Sunday morning and what they see in the business meeting on Sunday night. They see inconsistency between what they hear their parents say from the Bible and what they hear their parents say about other things throughout the week. Or they hear and greet and welcome and love their older church members uh, on a Sunday morning and can't believe some of the things that they're posting on Facebook throughout the week. When all we focus on is gospel doctrine, we become like the Sunday school teacher with Russell Moore and the coin. And our culture, the way we treat one another, undoes all the good work of training and raising up our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so older people specifically, I I have this challenge for you. There are teenagers in here that are watching you. They want to know what a Christian household looks like. They want to know what a believer cares about in the political sphere. They want to know what uh, adults think about, uh, Christian adults think about schooling and about college and about anything under the sun. Does your culture match your doctrine? It's so important we get it right. Faithfulness to the gospel, according to this text, is not just doctrinal purity. It's relational beauty. It requires more than doctrinal purity. It requires relational beauty. We can't just believe all the right things. The way we love, serve, pray for, and honor one another, it is a testament to the truth of the gospel itself. The beauty of the gospel message should be reflected in the beauty of our churches. So if we want to be faithful to the gospel message, we must strive, we must labor, we must toil to live in relational beauty. So how do we, how do we build this gospel culture? Well, there's a reason that our first core value is being rooted in the gospel. Because we know that 
everything we do flows from what we believe about God. That's why we start every service with reading God's word, because our worship is in response to what God has already revealed. That's why uh, when we come up here and we talk about giving and we pray the giving prayer, we don't just give for arbitrary reasons, but we give in response to what God has already given us. And I'm confident that if we are focused on rooting ourselves in the gospel, means that we will grow better together. We'll be radical in generosity. We'll send every member as a missionary, and we will see everyone as valuable if we start out with being rooted in the gospel. So quickly, I just want to suggest three things, three practices, three characteristics that are non-negotiables in our church non-negotiables to build a gospel culture. Three H's, very Baptist. First, we must be humble. We must be humble. Ephesians 5.12, it says, it says, submit to one another. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love those verses. We'll sing. We won't get drunk. We love that. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Is there anyone in this room that you think is not worth submitting to? You're out of step with the gospel culture. We are no greater than any of our brothers and sisters. We are no greater than our unbelieving neighbors. And it's in response to what Christ has done for, for us. It's in reverence to Christ. It means that no job is too small for us. It means that you're ready to serve anyone at a moment's notice. And even if you are in some place of authority, you must be brought low. Like our Lord who served out of, and, and we serve out of reverence to his service and his grace. It means living, this is hard, get this. It means living with the mindset that you are the least important person in the room. Not because you're so low and so terrible, but because you're willing to elevate everyone around you because they are made in the image of God. It's one of the hardest things that we can do. But by God's grace and through his spirit, we can do it. We can submit to one another. So we must be humble. Second, we must be honest. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Nathan read it to start, but 1 John uh, 1, he said, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses our sin. Walking in the light does not mean walking with Jesus or with the knowledge of Jesus. It means walking in exposure. We can hide nothing from the light of Christ, and we should hide nothing from our siblings in Christ. James 5.16, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, then you may be healed. How do we recover from our sinful patterns? How are we healed from our sin? Well, we walk in the light. We confess our sin and we are prayed for, then we may be healed. And we can be unafraid of any shame, of any judgment, because our doctrine tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, there is no one good. No, not one. So we can regularly be confessing sin, praying for one another, and being healed because it's the gospel at work. We should humble ourselves. We should be honest. And finally, we must show honor. Do you know when we are best at showing people honor? When it's too late? We know how to show people honor. 
We know how to honor people. The problem is they're dead in a casket when we choose to do it. But Paul tells us in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. It's a godly competition. Football kickoff is next week, but it's not a godly competition this week, this Thursday. But this is a God-ordained competition. So go get them. Go win one for the Gipper. Who can you show honor to this week? Who can you encourage? Who can you build up? Who can you relieve? There are people in here who have horrible, self-deprecating thoughts flowing through their head day and night. Who can you relieve of that burden? I just want to say that honor is not flattery. Flattery is lying. It's insincere. But honor is from the heart. It's a true celebration of the other. Everyone in this room is deserving and worthy of honor. Everyone. So why not be obedient to the book of Romans and be the ones to give it to them? Give them the honor that they deserve. And I was trying to figure out, like, how do I describe what honor is? How do I say what honor is? And it's one of those things that it's, it's intangible. It's, it's a tone. It's a feel. It's a, it's a vibe. And so I, I thought of this example from one of my heroes, Fred Rogers. And I might cry telling the story. I'm just going to put it out there up front. But there's a, there's a picture I'd like to put up there. So that's, that's Fred Rogers kneeling. And this is, this is a guy named Jeff Erlinger. And um, Jeff Erlinger in this picture, he's 10 years old. And he met uh, Fred Rogers when he was five. And all he wanted to do was be on the show. He wanted to be on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Which, by the way, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that's gospel culture. That's what it looks like. Love your neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? Come on. But so Jeff is, is going to come on the show, and, and Fred, had, Fred wrote all the scripts for the show. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Jeff what it's like to live in a wheelchair and what it's like to, to have these disabilities and live with these disabilities. And I'm going to talk about his disabilities. And instead, Fred starts talking to Jeff, And he starts singing this song that, is, that he sang routinely on the show. He says, this is the song. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now. Way down deep inside. Not the things that hide you. Not your toys. They're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new, I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you, yourself, it's you. It's you I like. On national television, Fred Rogers made the radically loving decision to go off script and to show honor to this little boy. And I want you to know that that is how God looks at you today. In your sin, in your brokenness, in your doubts, in your struggles, no matter how bad you think they are, God looks at you and he says, it's you I like. 
the way you are right now, the way down deep inside you. It's you that I like. That's what showing honor is. So gospel culture requires humility, honesty, and showing honor. And when a church fully embraces and recognizes this truth of the gospel message, when we come and put all of our chips on the table living by faith in the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us, there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more inviting. There's nothing more loving than the church that believes that doctrine and the church that lives out that belief. If our church committed to making being rooted in the gospel the priority in all of our lives, to be soaked like a sponge in the goodness of the gospel, then when you squeezed us, what would run out was the glory and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God to a, rush, to a watching world. We get to be instruments of God's redeeming grace, of God's redeeming culture, and we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But through gospel doctrine and gospel culture, we can create a church that displays the gospel more fully. We get, by God's grace, the opportunity to look more like Jesus day by day together. So let's take it. Let's take the chance to embody Jesus more and more and create a church where the culture says undeniably that Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Even the messy parts of it that we don't understand that why are these apostles fighting with one another it's to reveal your goodness. It's to reveal your glory. It's to put to death any sense of pride that we might have in ourselves. It's to display Christ to us. To display the ongoing story of uniting yourself to your people. Never leaving them to their own devices. You go after us. So this morning, there are those in this room that have not embraced the love of Jesus. I pray that you would work in their hearts, convict their hearts with your spirit, turn their hearts of stone into a heart of flesh, and let them believe for the first time that church can be more than just a place to go get shamed or to go get ignored, and that Jesus is more than just someone who's aloof, but is a personal God who wants them just as they are. God, and if, if we are part of your family, if we are part of this church family, overflow our hearts with joy for your goodness, for your gospel, and for our brothers and sisters that sit in this room with us and let us sing with one voice together how good and great and glorious you are. We can only do this because of the justification we have through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to, if you don't know Jesus, I'd love to introduce you. I'll be right down here. I'd love to talk to you about what it is to follow Christ. If there's someone you need to go confess 
some sin to and be prayed for and be healed, I encourage you to use this time to do that. Or if there's someone in this room that you need to go show honor to, use this time to respond in that way. Or if you just want to stand and sing about how good God is, you can do that as well. Let's stand and respond.